Hello, this is Shonda Smith-Baker. Today's conversation, I'm so excited about it. It is a conversation with the Susan Taylor. Susan Taylor, the editor-in-chief formerly of Essence, she has moved on to make a tremendous difference in our community across the country with young people and bringing mentorship to them to support their overall success. This was a conversation with a legend. It was just a delight to be with her. I hope you enjoy it and feel my admiration of her, her work, and her legacy come through. You're listening to Conversations with Shonda, a Minneapolis Foundation podcast that unpacks the community's grittiest, most vexing problems, hosted by Shonda Smith-Baker. I am here in conversations with Shonda with the Susan Taylor. Thank you so much for being here. You know it's my joy. I've been longing to do this, and here we are. Here we are. We have been committing our lives towards working hard on behalf of our community, and we have listeners that are feeling tired and looking for ways to replenish, to be in connection, to find others that understand what they are navigating in the world. And I just thought we would just start out that way since we just had a conversation as we entered. I heard you take that deep breath. Are you feeling it like I'm feeling it? You know, I am. And what I'm realizing is that we never catch up. Yeah. You know, so I think that's something that we have to hold and discipline ourselves enough to really put at the top of the to-do list, first of all, ourselves, Mm-hmm. You know, self first, and then the, the, what? What I say to the team at the National Cares Mentoring Movement is self first, and then family, and then community. And you can serve the community through the National Cares Mentoring Movement. But we know if that if we don't take care of ourselves, we don't serve well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't like myself when I'm not mm, when I'm stressed and overwhelmed because I'm not kind. I'm not a kind wife. I'm not a kind mother. I'm not a kind friend or a good leader. But it's remembering these things that is really the challenge. We were in a conversation earlier, and there was a brief conversation about the ego. And I hear often folks, particularly that work in the social sector, that say, and that's because I'm, that's who I'm around, that say, well, I can't take a time off because who else is going to do the work? And so what you're suggesting here is that you'll be doing the work, but it won't be your best work. It won't be the best work. And I remember something that a woman by the name of Ann Fudge, before your time probably, but Ann was the president of Maxwell House. This is a sister, a black woman, who I was on a spa retreat with. And there we were, they were all around the pool having a good time. And I was on the phone calling in changes. This is before, you know, we had the capacity like of the internet and everything. And I'm calling in changes at the magazine. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I have to do this work. I said, how do you leave Maxwell House? I'm running a magazine, but you're the president of Maxwell House, the CEO. And she said, if I have to, while I'm on vacation, go back to work and do the work that I, in, that I really um, assign to others, then I have the wrong team. I never forgot that. I don't know that it informed my work habits, but it's really true, you know? And so it's really a discipline to know when to pull back and to really schedule time for ourselves to restore. And that's what I'm still working on. I've written about it. I've written three books about it, maybe four. Edited hundreds of articles about it. But knowing it and practicing it, two different things. Mm -hmm. Is it in the spirit? In the spirit was my column that I wrote for 27 of my 37 years at Essence, you know? 
-hmm. And a lot of it was about self-care. Yeah, and what led you to Essence? You know, interesting story for me. I, um, I hadn't gone to college after high school. I wanted to be an actress, and so I headed for the theater area and started studying theater and started getting parts. I was on As the World Turns. I had a recurring role, and I mean, I was really on a... And then I ended up doing a film with, with Mia Farrow and, and Dustin Hoffman, and then I landed on Broadway, understudying Paula Kelly, the lead actress, in a three-character play. And I want to tell you, I could never get that inane part in my head. And I remember saying, Lord, if you let me out of this one, I'm going to find my meteor, because it's definitely not this, right? Because had she gotten ill, I never, ever would have been able to step onto that stage. So I was the only person who was happy that the play closed on opening night. And with that, you know, I went to beauty school. I was married at the time to a person who had beauty salons. And I started one of the first cosmetics companies for black women. That led me to Essence Magazine. Because women who had journalism degrees weren't interested in writing about anything as mundane, seen at the time, the height of the black power movement, 1970. You know, anything as mundane as, as beauty. So that's how I got my foot in the door, in essence, as the beauty editor, then fashion and beauty editor, and then editor-in-chief. Of all the barriers that you have broken, which are you the most proud of? Hmm. You know, I didn't understand it fully when it was occurring, but the readers were so excited that I was a single mother. My marriage broke up when my daughter was six weeks old. Oh, yeah. So here I am, you know, I hadn't gone to Essence yet, but shortly after that, I'm at Essence, and you know, moving the magazine forward in the beauty and fashion area. And I'm raising this daughter. When I became editor-in-chief, I wrote about that a lot. You know, raising her solo and trying to balance and trying to find my way. And women were like, oh my God, that is so incredible that you're doing. It's giving me the courage, you know, and a pathway that leads to my being able to do that as well. So I would say that being a single mother, and I say to my daughter, we survived me, because Lord of mercy, what I didn't know scares me now. But, you know, we move through. And probably having a high-level job that was so demanding, that required, well, now that I look back on it, maybe it wasn't seven days a week, but that's what I gave it, you know? And raising my daughter on my own, I want to say that that was my, probably the greatest triumph. I have a similar journey, although I was not at Essence. Okay. <laughs> I was at the north side of Minneapolis trying to, trying to figure out and navigate, right? And I think there's lots of us that see being a single parent as a barrier to success, right? I work in the field where we are uh, defining what's possible for people in our language. We don't realize that we're always doing that, right? They're a single mom. We have to figure out how to give them all these things in order for them, instead of they have dreams, right? How can we assist them? And they happen to be a single mom. We lead with the thing that we think are the barriers. And so thank you for inspiring because it is the stories and the modeling that I think bring us to those places. Of it's, 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 it's hard. We can't minimize how difficult it is to not have a partner. That yeah. second income, you know, would have been wonderful. Mm -hmm. And having somebody to say, hey, you play with the baby today, you know, <laughs> or you take, take her to school. Yeah. You know, so just balancing it all. And, you know, thank goodness for community and support and other sisters and my mother who really did help. So the article and the modeling, you know, I recently was in the Chief to Chief, in essence, and it was a moment for me. And it was a moment that was very emotional when it came out. 
And I realized it was because as a young girl, Essence, Ebony, and Jet were it. That is where I got to see the strength of Black women, Essence and Ebony, really. That's how I connected. That's how I got to see what else was beyond the doors that I was living in. And they were staples, and they are staples in our community. Did you realize, I mean, not just the importance of the article, but did you realize the importance of Essence as that brand and what it was doing? Because it shaped so many of us. Not at all. Not at all. You know, when you're doing the work, you're doing the work. And there's something about the magazine industry. You always have three or four issues going at the same time. Yeah. So you have the one that you're maybe shooting, the one you're planning, the one you're thinking about, the one that's going to press, and you're moving from one to the other. And I'll tell you something that I, that I do, and congratulations on that wonderful Essence story, that we, we don't pause to step back and say, this is what I'm building, and hey, this is pretty good. I really enjoy that and celebrate ourselves for it and one another, the team. We just, it's the grind. We're just moving from one thing to another. I don't want to work like that anymore, and I'm really trying to find a way not to. So at Essence, no, we had no idea, you know, the impact we were having. But I have to say that, you know, Marsha Angelespi was the editor-in-chief when I, well, no, she wasn't. When I became editor-in-chief, she had just stepped down. But there was another woman who was there before her, Ida Lewis, who really hired me. And Ida was a phenomenal leader. And she really took time to celebrate the team and for us to have a philosophy. And Marsha grounded that. So that every Tuesday, I was able to gather the team in my office and remind us, you know, about why we were here. We were here for the forward movement of black women. Because we know when black women thrive, the children thrive. The men in the community thrive. All the genders thrive, we hope. You know, we have, there's some stuff that we really have to address. But also the community thrives. So that was a philosophy that was driving us forward. But I don't think we were looking back to see the changes that were happening as we embraced our beauty, our color, our hips, our lips, and just began to love being black women. Mm -hmm. But our voices, that was, I think, the... the one of the most important things, certainly identity, yes, our looks, our hair, all the variations in which we could shape it, but also having the voices of Audre Lorde and Alice Walker and, you know, Octavia Butler and Angela Davis and so many phenomenal women that now had a forum, a place where black women in the black community knew they could turn and, and hear and grow from. So when I think about just representation, right? Being able to pick up a magazine and see something that looks like me or to go in the store and buy the baby doll for my daughter, right? When I think about how intentional I've had to be and where I go and the network to find those items, you know, just listening to you, I'm wondering, because we're still having conversations around the importance of representation. Do you see, do you see progress in that? Absolutely. You don't have to search today as you did, you know, what? We're talking Essence. I joined Essence 52 years ago. You know, it was 1970. And we had to search for everything, the books. And that's what made Essence really this repository of the things that really black women, black people needed. The brothers embraced Essence. You know, of our 8 million readers, I want to say 29% were men, really? which was stunning. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, you know, they would say, they would fold the cover back and say, oh, you know, I'm not really reading a woman's magazine, but I, I want to see the pretty women. It was more than that, the content. 
You know, from the very beginning, there was a philosophy that was moving essence ahead, and it was a philosophy that might not have been available in the other publications at the time, because essence could be political in a way that maybe the other magazines were not, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, John Johnson, Ebony Magazine, the, the godfather, the grandfather, yeah. Yeah. you know, we were following in his footsteps, in his wake, and there wasn't a time that I went to Chicago that I didn't, you know, try to sit at his knee and learn something. But today, you don't have to search for that black doll. You can go online and find a, a, a coterie of them. You don't have to search for black literature and books that really represent our children well. You don't have to search for somebody to braid your hair. Mm-hmm. You know, their braid is everywhere. So it's, 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 you know, things have changed a lot. How about in journalism? You know, Patrice on the staff that you just walked by and she said, I want to know, like, from her perspective, right, like, have we regressed in terms of journalism, right? Like, we, we see more, like, social media and the impact, like, have we regressed? Is the, is the reporting the same quality with the same intention? I want to know, ask her that question. You know, I would say we have to look in the mirror because we've not supported black media in a way that we should have supported it. Ebony Magazine is not publishing a magazine anymore. It's online. Black Enterprise is not publishing a magazine anymore. It's online. And we look at all the black brands that have bitten the dust. Essence is publishing now bi-monthly, but I hear they're coming back to the monthly. But the cash cow there is really the music festival. So you have, you know, women who are, and men who are phenomenally trained, and they're fine journalists, but do the newspapers, look at the, the demunition of newspapers. Where are you going to work? And who's going to look at our history and culture and frame our issues if we don't have black people with some power? You can find us in some places with power, but when you look at journalism as a whole, you're not going to find black women, black men, in places where they really can dictate what's happening, and the perspective. You see that primarily on television. Mm-hmm. No matter what city you're in, you know, as they say, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, and it's always that painful black story. And we forget that media organizations, television networks, they're businesses, and they make money when eyeballs are trained on them. So we're looking for a different kind of value system that I would say guided essence, and it also guided black enterprise. And it guided Ebony. We were for the community. We are for the community. But outside of our race, the general market media, not, I mean, you're hard-pressed to find those that are really for the community. So I think it's, it's, it's there are fewer places where black people can have really pow- real power, like we did at Essence and do, but it's such a small staff. It's a, sm- a much smaller staff. My heart breaks for them that they can't do the trips around the world. I mean, how many times did we go to our motherland? I'm thinking about when Zimbabwe was celebrating its first anniversary. We were there. You know, we were there to report on it. When uh, Winnie and Nelson Mandela, when he walked out of that, that prison, we were there with journalists. The resources are not there today for black media to cover those things in a way that we did. And so for the listeners that want to support black, you know, enterprises, black business, black narratives, positive narratives that are happening, they should be investing in resources like Ebony and Essence and Black Enterprise. 
and local newspapers. And local newspapers. Our local black newspapers. I mean, mm -hmm. they're the drum. You want to know what's going on in your community, whether you live there now or not. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, we've got uh, Essence and Insight and North News in our city. Yeah, very fair point. And Caroline Wanga. Yes. yes My she's girl. Phenomenal. Yeah. Absolutely phenomenal. So she's now in New York City, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, doing a phenomenal job. She's a fine leader. Yeah, she is. And I'm hoping that we will get back to, that she will bring it back to being able to show up in the motherland in all the places that we should be uh, in Essence. Well, she and Rishi Lou, you know, um, the, so, yeah. Yeah, the person who purchased Essence, mm -hmm. they're dedicated mm -hmm. to the diaspora, to knitting us together. You know, our sisters and brothers who are in our motherland, who are in the Caribbean, who are in the United States and throughout Europe. And I think that's the big vision. And I see it being realized yeah. through the coverage. That's interesting because Rich Lou is Liberian and Caroline is Kenyan. He's the owner. She is running Essence for uh, black folks. And I know that there's been conversations and we have it all the time. Are you a descendant of, of slavery or... I mean, like these divisions that we have in our community. And do you see an opportunity, right, in that vision? Was that awareness or tension there when you were there? Do you feel it? Or have you felt it? You know, I see myself today as a bridge. Okay. And I think Essence was that too. It was only the vision of our leaders, those who preceded me and under my leadership too, and the team I was working with, that said, you know, we're going to the motherland. And we're going to shoot fashion in Senegal, you know, and we're going to cover Ghana. So we went to Ghana, which many African-Americans see as their, you know, homeland, mm -hmm. uh, not knowing at that time where we really, which countries we came from. And I'll tell you, we took a 16, 16 member crew to Ghana, including stylists and fashion folks and just everybody got there with trunks of clothing. I went on a site visit with the photographers and I'm looking at this magic walking through the streets, people in these boo-boos and these chocolate women with their hands henned and they're sitting on the floor and they have shoe sticks in their mouths cleaning their teeth in the marketplace. And I said, there is nothing that we have in those trunks that can compare with what I'm seeing walking through the streets. We sent the models home, we closed up the trunks and we photographed the people of Ghana. And then what we did, and this is a consciousness, you know, what we did was we gave the, 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 the pamphlet, because it was that, that we created to the Ghanaians and said, use this as your marketing tool. This is what you want to do. This is how you can give people the incentive to come and visit the country. So it's a, um, it's a consciousness that emerged during the, pla the Black Power movement. When I think we began breaking down those barriers. The barrier that I would like to see broken down right now is one of classism. And I do see myself as a bridge. You know, I'm not afraid of my folk in the community. I grew up in the community, I come from the community, and it's my responsibility to help, re not even restore, because the community has never thrived in a way that it should, mm -hmm. you know, have thrived. We've always, we've always been under-resourced. Are you framing that around what Black, like the classism that exists within the black community? I am. Or the broader community? I yeah. am. And meaning that, like, once you have reached a certain class, you are not thinking about what's happening in the urban community? Most of us. Most of us are not, you know, and this is what I see. You know, I'm saying there's no reason for small nonprofits, not CARES, you know, CARES, we're in 58 cities, you know, including Minneapolis, yeah, yeah. St. Paul CARES, and we have Darlene and Curtis Bell, they're doing great work. 
But I mean, to try to get able, stable black folks to go into schools and teach our young people how to read, only 15% of black children in the United States of America are reading at or above grade level, 15%. And we're not talking about 15% of those in under-resourced schools, we're talking about across the board. I mean, what are our faith institutions doing? I feel that I shouldn't even be doing this work. If our faith institutions were really monitoring and looking at what's happening, you know, in our school systems, I think they'd be keeping report cards. They would make sure that those who we elect to political office have a what? Have a mandate from the community. This is what our children need. And I don't see that kind of organizing taking place. That doesn't mean it's not taking place anywhere, but I can't think of one underserved, overwhelmed community that has transitioned into full capacity, self-supporting without it being gentrified and black people being removed. That's what I'm looking for. We don't have to live there. That's where you emerged from. We have to care about one another. I love the way that Gwendolyn Brooks, the first you know, person, black person to receive a Pulitzer Prize said it. She said, we are each other's keeper. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And that's really what we have to, have to rebuild. You know, just finally, I think so much of what we had, and we can romanticize what we had in our motherland, but so much was lost. We lost family connections, which mean everything to people of African ancestry and to all people. We lost family, we lost foodways, we lost our names, country of origin, our religion, and we lost our children. We lost one another. So I think what we're doing is remaking ourselves, and we have to do it intentionally. You just brought up the spirit of my mother, because my mother growing up would say, community is a place you invest in, not move from. I'll be quoting her. <laughs> yes, yes. My mother, and um, she would say, if you move from there, that's one thing, but you never move from there in your deeds, right? You continue to invest your time in the place that you are from. Right, you don't disconnect yourself from the people, right? And no matter how smart, pretty, successful, there's always someone else <laughs> that has more of those things, and there's someone that would have more if they had the infrastructure and the support and the systems to help them achieve it. Don't ever think of yourself as exceptional. So true. It's profound. Mm -hmm. And don't you long for that that our being more bridge-like? Yeah. So this is what we're doing. We're, you know, this community is going to take over that school. Not take over, but we're going to support that school. We're going to make sure that the children have computers, that they have books, that the teachers are not overwhelmed, that they have the training they need. You know, sometimes, sometimes, not the best teachers, those who are most equipped, are assigned to our schools, you know, in the inner city, sometimes. Then you have those teachers who grew up in that community, who just want to go back and serve, and they are the best. And we know that educators are the most underpaid professionals in the nation. Don't you long to see more able, stable black people be involved in the recovery of our community? We are the most highly educated and privileged black people on earth. What can't we do? And I always say, what's the plan? What is the plan that includes us all? Not just your family you know, and your family of friends, but what is the plan that will absolutely lift our people out of poverty? This is not nuclear physics. 
It's possible to do. We could start with education in healthcare. How do we ensure that? You know, I'm not the expert. But here I, I've dived in through the National Cares Mentoring Movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, what do, I mean, I didn't even have a great education. So in spaces, I'm feeling insecure. You know, I, I grew up going to an underserved and overwhelmed school and graduated from high school and didn't go to college immediately. I went back, but I was already the editor-in-chief of the magazine. Yeah. You know, and then on to Union Theological Seminary. I didn't complete the course, but I went, you know. But at least there were people at Essence who really guided me and mentored me. And I remember Marsha Gillespie saying, if you can speak and you can speak, you can write. Oh, I needed to hear that, you know? I, I, I don't even know where to go. Because part of my question is around having people that are listening understand what it does to be a child in an under-resourced school. Mm, okay. You know, I thought I knew until I started putting these big size 11s on the ground in our community, not just writing about it, but going into those schools and seeing young people who were leaving shelters to come to school. Young people who didn't have a place for their clothing to be cleaned. Young people who were hearing gunshots all night long, who couldn't sleep well. You know, during the COVID shutdown of schools, There was a lot of conversation about what our children were going to have. There were children who were living in communities that didn't have Wi-Fi service. And we forget about rural people, Mm -hmm. you know, of every color. But we forget about black rural people totally, you know. So those young people didn't have computers, didn't have Wi-Fi service, couldn't connect. And what they lost is probably incalculable. But it doesn't mean that it's lost forever. The question is, let's look in the mirror. What is our assignment? That's what I ask myself. And, you know, after Katrina devastated New Orleans, I said to the Essence family, we just can't go back to New Orleans and do what we've done. We have to do something else. And I was on the west coast of, uh, the east coast, rather, of Africa, and I just asked the Holy Spirit, what should I do? What should we do? And, you know, the answer came back, mentor. Just get people to go into the communities and encourage our young people, propel them. Give them the hope that they need. It's there, but it has to be unearthed. You know, we're not giving anybody anything. We're unearthing what is already there, their brilliance and their talent, and helping them to understand that they, that they matter. Because a lot of young African Americans feel that they are targeted and that they don't matter. Minnesota, it's been tough. It's been tough, and there's still a debate on, you know, Black Lives Matters. We have a teacher's contract right now that's been in national news because the contract is elevating um, the hiring and retention of black educators. And when there's a choice, we're leaning towards black in that contract, right? It's complicated, but it feels like there's so many things that are racialized, and yet there's so many people that have been committing their work to addressing the disparity, right? To doing the work. But then we're still racializing and comparing and pitting in ways that I don't think is useful towards the movement forward? You know, I think essentially we don't know the history. We don't know the history. If we really, and I mean this, if, it was, if, if the history of this nation, the truth of the nation were taught, then people would have another understanding. Mm-hmm. The truth of this nation and what happened as we know, what was taken from 
in the indigenous people is a, is a harsh story. What happened to African people to go along the coast of South Africa, and not only, to go into the interland, I mean, into the, um, you know, the hinterlands and to put people in chains and muzzles, you know, tether them to one another and walk them hundreds of miles to the shore. And, you know, I, I visited many times the slave dungeons. And the last time I was there it was with the Congressional Black Caucus and Nancy Pelosi decided she wanted to go. Mm. And I was asking my friends in the CBC, they said, she just wants to go. And I'm looking at Nancy Pelosi, who's in tears, because this is a first knowing mm. so deep about what our arrival cost. That's what I think about every day. I'm looking at a, an area that's probably no wider than this that the enslaved Africans had to pass through in order to get in the rowboats to take them out to the largest ships waiting for them for this middle passage, you know? And I'm like, how could they? Because they weren't going to feed you so that you couldn't resist. You know, it's a hard history to own. And so we're going to name all of that critical race theory and shut it down. But we can't heal. This nation cannot heal without the truth. We know you're not giving back all the land to the indigenous people. Reparations, yes. Fix education. Ensure that education and, and health care are made available to everyone. And there are other things. I'm not a reparations expert, mm -hmm. and a lot of people are looking at this. But if we knew the history, there'd be greater sensitivity and understanding. But there is a real move to ensure that the truth of the history is unknown. I was in um, North High School last year, and there was a moment, and I, I can't even remember what the incident was, because there were many incidents that happened last year um, in our community and in that community specifically, and they had a celebration, and the principal got up, and she said, I want you to know that you all came from kings and queens, that you came from those who survived, right? You've come from strength. You've come from greatness. Right. You have come from places and people that you don't know, but their spirit is in you. And because of it, you are great. And she just went on and you could just feel the sense of pride in that room. And I don't remember the last time I've been in a school setting when I have heard that acknowledgement of history, the acknowledgement of greatness in that way, collectively, not a handful, but collectively. Um, it was beautiful, and you could feel it. That's the counterbalance to the to what we see on the nightly news. Yeah, you know, our young people are saying we feel targeted. We're always being followed. We're suspicious. You know, if I go into, I look like a homegirl when I'm going shopping. I'm not trying <laughs> yeah. to look cute. You I, know? I kind of believe that. No, yeah. I know. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, I have on my sneakers and a cap, and mm -hmm. I'm going in there, and I'm, mm -hmm. and you know, you have people looking at you like, oh, is she coming in here to? It's, it's um, the, the media really speak louder than mother, mm. than, than teachers, because we're being impressed with these images day after day after day after day. I'm so proud of today's young people. So many of them are awakened, mm -hmm. and they are serious, mm -hmm. and they want more than just corporate jobs. They want entrepreneurship and ownership. And they, and they want to be their authentic selves if they're in that corporate space without being disrespected. It's, it's difficult. And so much of our work is really a, um, it's a prophylactic for that. 
people, no, no matter what they say about you or how people treat you, you have to know who you are. And that's really how our curriculum yeah. is shaped, you know, with history and spirituality and wealth building and relationships. How, how, how are we supposed to be married? How are we supposed to partner? Who, who, where would we have seen that done well? The few people, no matter what the races are, you know? So this is something that is known. We know a lot about black child development and child development. These are things that should be taught so that we're not wounding that next generation and passing on the, the trauma that lives in us. And it's alive. Yeah, it is alive. So the National Cares Movement. So you were in Africa. You had a vision. You wanted to move into mentoring. You've mentioned it a couple of times in our conversation. So how... So you just came home and got to work? That's the kind of power we want to have, and, <laughs> and many of us do. Yeah. We came back, and I said to the Essence family, we just have to do something different. We're going to go back, and we're going to create empowerment seminars. And I remember something that Hakeem Marabudi, the founder of Third World Press and two charter schools that are cultural schools, you know, that he did. He used to bring for the... Um, a National Black Holistic Society, African-American men had created that, and he would bring these wonderful speakers upstate New York, and I said, that's what I'm gonna do at the Essence Festival. I'm gonna bring some of the best speakers to speak about the things that we need, spirituality, relationships. Well, I planned it for about 200 people, and 500 showed up on a rainy day. So the next year, I planned it for about 1,000 people, and 3,000 showed up. And what I saw was that we could take men separate them, send them upstairs, this is in the Morial Convention Center, and have them talk about the things that they needed and what they were feeling in a safe space, led by men who weren't afraid to cry and feel, which opened the way for our men to do what is so hard for them, and that's to tell the truth about what they're feeling and thinking. And the women would stay, thousands of women there, and then we'd come back and report on it, journalism, report on it before the, the larger audience. And that those empowerment seminars continue today and have grown to the point where, oh my gosh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who attend. So there's a way, you know, Jesse Jackson used to say, you all understand entertainment. We can entertain and also educate at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's what has to be figured out. Yeah. Let's talk about the National Cares Movement. It's something that you believe deeply in. I had an opportunity to meet um, the folks that you're investing in in Minneapolis, Darlene Bell and Curtis Bell, and they have fostered many kids. They're incredible. And I guess I felt so familiar with them because I was just familiar with how many young people they've supported in our community. That's who they are. And they shouldn't have to work so hard to get others involved. That's the frustration in this work. I'm not going to be frustrated by it. We have to understand it. We're not asking people to give up their homes or to move folks in and to be adoptive or foster parents like, you know, um, Darlene and Curtis. But we're saying, can you give an hour a week to just sit with a young person and encourage them? What you said the principal, yeah. you know, said to students to remind them of who they are, to give them a book to read if they're having difficulty reading to help them, you know, to help them understand maybe what their parents have been through. Because there's a lot of demonization of poor people. And poor parents. And people, I can't tell you how many people have said to me, oh my, it's the parents, it's the parents, it's the parents, you know? Oh, it's like, you know, it could have been me. That's all I'm saying, it could have been me. So the National Cares Mentoring Movement, which was founded as Essence Cares at the Essence Music Festival, I couldn't let people use the name Essence. So that's why we named it the National Cares Mentoring Movement. 
and the first affiliate was in Atlanta, and now there are 58 affiliates across the country, and we do two things. We recruit mentors, we train them, and then deploy them. And we turn no mentor away. We just don't want people who are able and middle class, and those are the folks who typically have time to mentor. We don't want them to look down on young people who may not dress in a way that you find comfortable, whose nails may not be understood by you, and hairstyles may be too dramatic you know, for your taste. But we want our people to be prepared to love them and to ensure that they are given the capacity that they, the capacity that is within them is unearthed so that they can graduate from high school and go off to college or um, an industrial training program and be self-supporting and, and live a life that is one that is economically mobile. That's the goal. That is the goal. And giving back to the community. Can't forget where you, where you came from, you, you know? It. That's you it. So that's what we're doing around the country, and we need all, all hands on deck. All hands on deck. Is it, is it a kindergarten through 12th grade, or is it high school? Or? Well, we're in schools. We're, now we're in a couple of grammar schools, but primarily it's high schools across okay. the country. But what we're doing all across the country is the recruiting of mentors, training, and deploying. It's not that we're building programs in all schools. And I'm saying no more brick and mortar. Yeah. Because now with technology and with, you know, the time we were shut down, we had psychologists. Our programs are all led by psychologists and social workers and volunteer mentors. Because the trauma that young people are living with is deep and it has to be understood and not minimized, you know. So when you're trained as a mentor with the big mentoring organizations, they're not teaching you how to deal with trauma. You need professionals, healing experts who know how to do that. And they are training our mentors and the children are thriving. It's, it's so inspiring to see. Yeah. I want to switch to talk about philanthropy just for a moment. And um, did you grow up knowing what philanthropy was? Oh, absolutely not. Not at all. Yeah. When, when did you realize that you were a philanthropist? When people started asking me for money and I started <laughs> acquiescing. Okay, mm-hmm. I can help. I can do this. I can donate. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't... I still don't really consider myself a philanthropist, yeah. but people do. And it's just giving to people what was given to me. You know, my father was an entrepreneur. He had a store that was on ground level. We lived in a tenement in Harlem. I was on the second floor. My brother and I were sleeping in the living room. And every single morning, six days a week, my father was, you know, raising that awning so that Larry's specialty shop, his boutique, could open up, you know? But philanthropy, it wasn't part of the nomenclature. I had no idea what it meant. But that's, that's what's needed right now. We have got to push our faith institutions, our divine nine sororities and fraternities, and all of our community organizations to really pay attention to those who are losing their way, to our children who are off course, because their parents may not have the capacity to guide them. And I'm, I'm saying to young people all the time, there is no parent who's not wishing the best That's for right. his or her child. That's no right. parent, you know, none at all. And um, there's a lot of forgiving to do. I wasn't the perfect parent. I wish, if there's something I wish I could do over, it's really parent my daughter. Yeah. Now I know a lot more than I did back then, you know. Yeah, that's a testimony right there. And I do think that we, we tend to judge other parents. And I don't know a perfect one. I don't know if you do, but no. <laughs> I don't know no perfect parent. I'll but tell we you. sir judge a lot of parents. We do. And, and parents that are living through really hard conditions and poverty. 
was a young man. We were at a school we work at, South Side of Chicago. And uh, Tom Burrell, who built the largest black-owned advertising agency in, in the world, was there. He's part of the team that helped us to build Windy City Cares. You know, he said, Susan, a young man just came up to me and he said, I want to be like you, Mr. Burrell, but my mother is addicted. And the library in my community has closed. And there's nowhere for me to study. I can't do my homework. So I end up sitting in a urine-infested uh, stairwell trying to do my homework because I dare not put my key in the door before my mother comes down from her afternoon high. Anybody who's addicted, that's no fun. You know, I give thanks every day that I have no addictions. You know, that's a hard thing. I mean, people have a hard time breaking a nicotine addiction. So a drug addiction, there should be places where people can go for that healing. So the opioid, you know, addictions have focused the nation, you know, on the treatment that's needed, but not available so in our communities as they should be. Mm -hmm. And now they're not demonized outside of our race, but still within the race. There's a demonization of people who are addicted to drugs. Come on, we can do better than we this. Better. You know what, what I feel that we're really building? We can build America the beautiful. Mm. There's truth-telling and lots of change that has to happen. But we can build America the beautiful. Let's make that real by ensuring that everyone in this nation has an opportunity to thrive. They're children who don't, don't have access. It's access that's key. Access, support, motivation. Mm. You've been casting out a vision with your words this entire conversation, and it does feel like there's a bit, there's a lack of a vision. There's a lot of discussion on the problem. It feels like there's just a lack of vision for what we need in our community. So I really appreciate you hearing that. Yeah, I want that vision to come out of our faith institutions, our sororal and fraternal organizations, and it's, it's just that our children need guidance and help and support. You know, we're raising $20,000 for pastors, 50th or 20th anniversary, but the children around the corner are not reading in that school. The teachers need support. So it's, it's widening the lens so that we're not looking myopically at just what's right for us and our families, but really looking more broadly as, at what's needed for the community. That's the history. That's the culture. And I just want to say, this is not the rough side of the mountain. Hmm. Before we go, I would love to share uh, with the listeners your leadership advice. Mm. Something that I have never understood, and it's why people in leadership would, would mistreat those who report into them and whom they need in order to succeed. I need you to execute well, you know? I need you to be paid well. I need you to feel valued so that this work can move forward. But ego gets in the way there, and people misuse power. I, I often say, give yourself to yourself before you give yourself away. Because if you step into that space feeling calm and grateful to have the opportunity to really lead and have some kind of say-so and power in people's lives, that's a heck of a responsibility. So my leadership values really have to do with kindness, understanding, not always needing to be right, because I'm not. I'm never the smartest person in the room when I'm hiring people. I'm, I want people who are smarter than me. You know, as I said, when I became the editor-in-chief of the magazine, I mean, I don't have a journalism degree. I did go to college and graduate, but it wasn't in journalism. It was in sociology. 
And here I am with the National Cares Mentoring Movement with, with nonprofit experts on that team who know. So I'm tuning my ears to listen to what they have to say so that we can really move this forward. This is, it's the big business of this nation. Damping poverty, elevating fragile lives out of poverty so that we can what? Have peace in these borders. The disruptions, so many of them have to do with, there's a lot of dishonesty and a lot of dis disruptions at boardrooms. I mean, that's, there's a lot of violence going on right there at the boardroom table. But I'm talking about the violence in our communities that has everybody concerned. We have to make sure that young people have the tools that they need. And we can't be writing people off. We have to write them in. That's what the National Cares Mentoring Movement is doing. We are writing our young people in, and that's my leadership sort of mandate, you know, that I want people who are passionate about this work. You don't have to know everything, and don't be afraid of what you don't know, because this is a learning institution, and what we're building, there's no template for this. You know, there's no template. I look at what is needed. We can't do everything our community needs, but our work is healing work. There's a, a spiritual healing that is needed and it's epigenetic, it's deep within us, that trauma. And that's the work of the National Cares Mentoring Movement. It's healing that trauma so that young people and we all, you know, people across the races can link arms and aims and move our children, all of our children and our nation forward. We have people that are listening, that are um, listening from across the country. And if they were interested in getting more involved with the National Cares Mentoring, where would they go? I would say, bravo first, thank you. Mm -hmm. And just come to caresmentoring.org, caresmentoring.org. We need you. Thank you so much. If you enjoy this show and want to learn more about what we do here at the Minneapolis Foundation, please visit us online at minneapolisfoundation.org. And of course, if you want to follow Shonda or the Minneapolis Foundation on Twitter or Instagram, that's Shonda S. Baker or MPLS Foundation. Thank you to Sarah Gillen, John Coco, and Darlin Benjamin. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thanks for listening.